All right, so we're starting chapter 10. We're still in the uh, phase or stage of interpretation. And so we're talking this morning about discovering the meaning of words and phrases. Okay, uh, so I've got a couple quotes to start. I'm not sure if I had all these on the screen. I think I've got part of them for the introduction. So I like the way they phrase this. Words are the building blocks of language. Without them, there's no such thing as a written word from God. Yet what impact does word meaning have on Bible interpretation? And how does one inductively discover the meaning of words in Scripture? So words are those building blocks. So we have to, to rightly understand what God's communicating to us. We have to understand what words uh, are used in that communication. They go on to say, Inductive Bible study is, however, concerned with the potential meaning of words in the biblical languages and ultimately with the actual meaning of words in their biblical context. Context always takes precedence over lexical definitions. In biblical discourse, words mean what their authors intended them to mean, not what word studies, lexical entries, or exegetical dictionaries determine they could mean. Yet there's some give and take. The meaning of a word in any context is constrained and informed by its semantic range. So these are key things to keep in mind as we go through this study is that context, we, we, we stress this every week, context is key, okay? So even as we go into this idea of word studies, we have to be careful not to, well, this word can mean this, and so if we take it that it can mean this, and we put it in this verse meaning that, then it can mean whatever we want it to say, okay? So, uh, a little bit of review as we begin, identifying significant words for study uh, when we were doing the observation stage, this is one of the chapters we focused on, I think it was chapter 5, where we talked about how do we pick out in Scripture what words we need to do a little more study on. Not that all the words aren't important, but there's going to be certain words that are going to require a little more study. Uh, and so this is a review of that. We need to pick out these types of not what we call non-routine words to study a little further. So the book says non-routine terms constitute the words and phrases within a text that warrant, warrant further attention, okay? And so on the screen, and I think in your notes, I have the um, explanation of what these terms are. These are the six that we focused on in that chapter, and so I want to review that because this is, uh, as we take it from the observation stage, there we were just trying to pick out what are the words that we want to observe. Now we're to that stage of now that we know those words in a, fr- in a passage, we're going to take these words and, and study them out further, okay? So there were contextually crucial terms. These are words and phrases that in a particular context convey the primary argument or meaning of a passage. So those key words in a passage, pretty straightforward as you're reading a passage, okay? To understand this passage, we need to understand these words. There's theologically profound terms. These are words and phrases that infer theological significance. We talked about how these are words that uh, your typical person's not going to know. A person outside of the church isn't going to be familiar with a lot of these words like justification, uh, at least in a biblical sense. So those are, are, are theologically profound terms, historically particular terms, cultural, geographically, or historically particular terms that may not be understood outside of the world of the Bible. So when you see uh, those cultural ideas or a certain area uh, in biblical times or... Uh, things that are historically significant, those are the words you're going to pick out as well. Exegetically and textually uncertain terms. 
words that are exegetically or textually uncertain in their context. We talked about some of those words that are ambiguous in a context that we need to study further. Figurative terms, words and phrases that convey figures of speech. And then symbolic terms, these are words and phrases that convey symbolic significance in a given context. Okay, So we want to understand each of these types of words in the observation stage. And then as we come into this stage of interpretation and word study, we can take those words and now we know how to study their meaning. Okay, So let's talk about traditional word study. Okay, so this is just the traditional way we would then study these words as we observe a passage and pull these non-routine terms out. The book says, traditional word study is a matter of first determining what a word could mean within the realm of a given language, and second, determining what a word does mean in a given context. Okay? The question regarding what a word could mean is a matter of discovering its semantic range the question regarding what it does mean is a matter of discerning authorial intention in a particular context. So these are the two key ideas when it comes to traditional word study. First step, what could this word mean? What is its what we call semantic range? Okay, What could it mean in, in every usage of it in, uh, in Scripture? What could the word mean? Once we understand what it could mean, now we're looking at the context and what did the author intend for it to mean. Okay, So keep that in mind. That's the main idea of this traditional word study. But before we get to that, we have to consider what are some basic word or basic resources for word study, okay? And so I brought a couple today that I'm, I'm going to pass around and you can look at. The first one is what we call an exhaustive Greek and Hebrew concordance. So you can see it's a very thick book. And as you look in here, what you're going to find is, like, let's say there's an English word that you find. So I popped here to doorkeeper, okay? So doorkeeper, uh, you can see every usage of that English word. Now this is, I believe, the King James. There are other ones. You see some examples. There's, there's, this is the Strong's, I think, King James. And then there's Strong's for NASB, Strong's for NIV. Uh, so whatever version you're using, if you look for a word, it'll tell you, okay, here's all the passages that that word is. And then next to it, what you're going to see is a number. Okay, So if I go back to... Let's just pick a random one. Herd's got a lot. But if you go to herd, there's a number beside it, and these are all Old Testament. 8085, okay, is the thing, is the main number for herd. And there may be different ones. So then what you do is you come to the back here. I think it's in the back. Let me see. So you go to the back, and actually there's a section for Greek, and there's a section for Hebrew. Okay, so you come to the Hebrew part, because it's Old Testament, and we're going to go find 8085, and I'll let you flip through this and look. But 8085 will tell you what the Hebrew word is. It's Shema, okay? Primary root, to hear intelligently, often with implication of attention, obedience, tentatively call together, so it gives you a whole definition of what that word can mean, okay? So anytime you're studying Scripture, you find one of those words, you can go to your Strong's Concordance, find the word, it'll give you the reference, and then you find the number, and then you know, okay, here's what the, the Hebrew or Greek word is and what it can mean, okay? 
So I'm going to pass this one around. I'm going to start right here. And if you'll just pass it around and you can look at it. Like I said, the front part is going to be all your English words. In the back, there's a little tab that says Hebrew to the right in Greek. So then you can find that. So that's, that's one of the tools we use to find out what is the word uh, in the original language being used and what can it mean, okay, semantic range. The second one I don't have with me. I, don't, I asked Pastor Justin if he had one. We, I couldn't find one. Uh, but it's a lexicon. These are dictionaries that include word definitions for original language vocabulary. Okay, so a couple examples. New Testament, there's a Greek and English lexicon of the New Testament and uh, other early Christian literature. And then Old Testament, there's the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew and English lexicon. Okay, so a lexicon can be a tool in understanding the definition of those Greek and Hebrew words. The third one is very similar and I brought one that's an expository dictionary, but it's uh, an exegetical dictionary, okay? This is a, an abridged dictionary that provides more detailed entries than standard unabridged lexicons, okay? So there's a couple examples there. I brought Vine's expository dictionary. And so this is just going to, as you find those words, as you flip through, you'll see a bunch of Greek and Hebrew words, and um, it'll tell you, well, really, you can look for the English, like, and it'll tell you what some of those Hebrew and Greek words that um, give us that English word, okay? So I'll pass that around as well. You can look at that. But these are just some tools that you can use as you're doing word studies to understand, first of all, what could this word mean? What's the semantic range of this word, okay? Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of online resources. You said Blue Letter Bible. I haven't heard of that one, but then Lagos has a ton of things. There's all kinds of uh, resources online as well. So very good. So once we use those tools or once we have those set aside, again, the first step is figuring out the range of meaning, Okay. So our first step in, original, in the original language word study is to discover what the word could mean. This involves delineating the semantic range of, the, of that original language word. There are two paths to discovering a word's semantic range. The quick path is through a Greek or Hebrew lexicon, exegetical dictionary, or word study software. Okay? They go on to say that while these tools are helpful, um, it could be beneficial to correlate all the references in Scripture of the word you're studying to understand how it can be used, okay? So you can yourself try to figure out where this word, where all these references to this word that you're studying. Um, we can also determine how a word is used by a particular author or between different books. So as you're looking at a word, maybe you want to focus on how does Paul use this word in his epistles. So as you're looking at um, your concordance, you may focus on the Pauline epistles as you're studying it, okay? Um, the reason that this is possible is, as you think about it, the reason we can have books like this that show us every usage of a Greek or Hebrew word is because we have a canon of Scripture that's completed, and it's finite in the sense of there's only so many words that are used, right? Now, it can be helpful when we're studying a, a Greek or Hebrew word, Especially where we talk about, we've talked about before, Greek or Hebrew words that are only used one time in Scripture. It's definitely helpful in that case to try to step back and what does that word mean in other literature outside of Scripture. 
But typically when we're studying words that are commonly used, we want to keep it limited to what is, how does Scripture use that word, okay? Yes, sure. So this would be um, in the King James, I think, or, well, it's probably, so you're talking about this example of Sheol, which is found 66 times in the Old Testament. Um, I'm guessing they're probably just going off of the, whatever, uh, like, it, whether it's, and it might be the same in the Texas Receptus, which is the basis for the King James, as well as your tip, your other manuscripts. So, yeah, I don't know, it's not, I don't think it's the word, because And sometimes there are modern translations that just translate because it's a difficult word. They just say Sheol. Like your English word will just carry, it'll carry right over to English. But um, So it's talking about the manuscript, the originals. So I'm not sure exactly if there's any variation between like your basis of manuscript. But good question, yeah. So... Um, so, yeah, let's look at this example. So the Hebrew word Sheol is found 66 times in the Old Testament, okay? And it's translated various times, and this is the King James. Sometimes it's translated as grave, sometimes as death, sometimes as depths. And half the time, as you see in the King James, it's translated as hell, okay? And so this would be a beneficial word to study as it has a pretty broad range of meaning. It could just be simply referring to, hey, we all go to the grave, we all die. It could be referring to torment and hell, that kind of thing. And so this would be a, a, an idea of a word that we might want to study and find out, okay, what's the range of meaning? And then the next step, as we're going to see, is then to what is the context of it in this passage that we're studying, okay? So it starts with getting the range of meaning, figuring out what can the word mean in every other usage of Scripture, what is that range, that semantic range, okay? The next step is to figure out the contextual meaning, okay, as we said. Words typically don't convey all or even multiple aspects of potential meaning in a single context. Usually, only one meaning from among semantic options is intended. So this is really important, and we're going to talk about some errors at the end, but this is important to keep in mind that when we find the range of the word, we don't want to then go to the passage and try to, well, how does it sound if we use this meaning? Or what does it say if we use this meaning? And so now we've got multiple different ways that that word could be used. Typically, the author is intending one meaning, okay? And so we want to discern in the context what is that meaning within that semantic range, okay? So the example we see here is from Ecclesiastes 7.16, and I'll just invite you to turn there. Ecclesiastes 7. Okay, and in verse 16, this is the ESV I have. It says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Okay. Does anyone have a different um, translation? Or maybe a different word than destroy yourself. Ruling, why rule yourself or why ruin yourself? Okay. Anybody else have a different word than destroy? Destroy. 
So read the verse for me. Uh, 7.16. So I think most translations translate that word destroy or ruin that, that idea. Uh, the NET, the Net Bible, has a little different translation, but um, the word in Hebrew is shamam, or sh- uh, yeah, sh- uh, sh- I don't know how to say it, shamam, I guess, and then um, again, it's that word destroy, as we saw translated. So when we study the semantic range of this word and look at its other usages in Scripture, it can actually have three various meanings. It can mean a state or process of destruction, so to be destroyed. That's how we saw it in the ESV. It can mean the word, or the word can refer to fear and consternation, so to be appalled. Or it can mean uh, dismay and bewilderment, to be astonished, Okay. And so, as we study the context, if we were to take time to really study the context of Ecclesiastes 7, 15 to 18, it would suggest maybe more that we should translate that word disappointment or astonishment, okay? So, the, the book says that the exception, uh, we should be disappointed the exception to expected outcomes, having seen the righteous person perishing in spite of their righteousness. The teacher advises the wise not to depend on their own righteousness as a security against premature death. Those who trust in their righteousness as a security might be shocked, nonetheless, to experience trouble in their life. On the flip side, the teacher also advises against flirting with disaster, even though he has seen the wicked live long in spite of his evil. Why die by retribution for your sins? The main point is to live soberly in view of the possibility of divine retribution, but not to live so confidently to think that there may be no exceptions in a fallen world. After, after all, good times and bad times are in the hand of God. Okay? So the context seems to be saying, don't trust your own righteousness. Why do that? Because then you're going to just be disappointed when you're trusting your righteousness and then bad things happen in your life. You're going to find yourself, well, what, why God? I've, I've been following you. I've been trusting my own righteousness. Why am I going through this hard state or you know, someone who may experience death? So it may be better to, and once we understand the semantic range, it might be better to say, well, probably that's more talking about being disappointed than destroyed, okay? Makes sense? So, again, we start with what can the word mean, then what does the word mean according to its context, okay? Any questions about, this is just our idea of traditional word study? Any questions or thoughts? All right, we're going to talk next about, and I don't want to go too in-depth with this, because really we would all benefit just doing traditional word study, but this is interesting, and the book points it out, is doing something called a semantic field study. So this is a little different than your traditional word study, okay? So the semantic field is distinct in that it refers to a collection of related words, including synonyms and anonyms within a given language, while semantic range refers to meanings housed within a particular word. Semantic field refers to associated words housed within a particular, particular language. So when we're talking about our traditional word study, we're going to focus on what is this word, how is it used, what, like what's the Hebrew and Greek. But when we're talking about a semantic field study, we're going to get outside of just that word and we're going to look at synonyms of that word, anonyms of that word that are going to help us have a deeper meaning and understanding of that word. Okay, So let's talk about um, an English example. So, take the word car, okay? 
What are some various meanings just in English of the word car? What could car, someone said car, what could that be referring to? An automobile, okay, what else? Okay, train car, yeah. What else, any others come to mind? Maybe part of an elevator, like you're the car of an elevator, okay? So there's different meanings. So um, if we're looking at that word, we might look at those various, that, that would be what we call it semantic range. The car can refer to these various things, okay? Um, but the semantic field would include associated vocabulary and concepts related to the English word car. So we might do studies on the word vehicle or the word truck or convertible, or bus, or limousine, or train car, different things. So we're going to use synonyms and anonyms that refer to that. So that's a little bit of a difference between your typical semantic range of car. It can mean these various things. And now we're going to do a semantic field study. What are some related words, some anonyms and synonyms of that, okay? Semantic field study, therefore, complements traditional word study at the level of interpretation and correlation. You should be interested not only in the words a biblical writer did in fact use, but also those related words that he could have used but did not. I think I yeah, have that up there, okay? So here's an example from of, of a semantic field study when it comes to uh, Psalm 14, 1, okay? And the word fool. So the uh, verse says, Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Okay? So, in English, the word fool can be a noun or a verb, and its semantic range would include definitions such as a silly or stupid person, a person who lacks judgment, a person who's been tricked or deceived, a professional jester, or it can mean in a verb to trick or deceive or to jest. Okay? So that's the semantic range of the English word. It can have a little bit of a variety of meaning. The Hebrew word for that we translate fool is nabal and connotes the idea of unbelief or irreverence towards God. So it's actually a little different than the way we use fool in the English. It actually has that connotation of this is someone who uh, is, is an unbeliever or is irreverent toward God. Okay. So, as we think about a semantic field study, we would start looking at some synonyms to that word fool. And so, we find a couple other uh, words that we translate as fool in English. Um, And I don't think I have them on the screen. Are they in your notes? Because they're hard to say, these Hebrew words. Do you see them in front of you under that um, semantic field study? So, Nabal is pretty easy to say. The other one is, and you probably have to get it in your throat to say it, but... Hefil or something like that uh, um, is another way, another word uh, that's translated as fool. That word has the idea of moral disdain and lack of judgment. And then this other word signifies more of a hard-heartedness and sense of behavior. Okay? Say what? Yeah, sure. uh, Evel, I don't know. Got to hack a little bit more. Um, So you see this field study can help you to, to know... What are some other words we translate fool? And then why did the author of this psalm not use those words? Why did he specifically use Nabal? Okay. So semantic field study reveals that the psalmist specifically chose the word Nabal 
because it connotes unbelief and irreverence towards God more so than the other related terms. So it's very clear in the context, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, clearly, this is the best word to use to describe that he doesn't believe in a God, okay? So a semantic field study also include, would include anonyms related to Nabal, seen by English words such as wise, wisdom, understanding. A study of the full semantic field of Nabal, including anonyms, enhances the idea that moral disposition is an essential component of biblical wisdom and that orientation toward God determines whether one is labeled as wise or fool. The merits of semantic field study are far-reaching, benefiting the student in the interpretation of individual texts and the development of a broad-based understanding of biblical motifs. Okay? So again, not to get too in-depth, but this can be just a beneficial way as you maybe you've done traditional word study and you want to take it to the next level, or as you progress in traditional word study and understanding the semantic range and what it means in the context, maybe you want to broaden that study and do more of this semantic field study, okay? All right, the next uh, thing, and I wanna, we'll wrap up with this, are some common dangers, okay? So as we do a word study, we do have to be careful not to uh, fall into some of these errors, okay? The first one we call full semantic range fallacy, and I've already hinted to this. This is also known as the illegitimate totality transfer. This occurs when a person imposes a significant portion or the totality of a word's semantic range into a single context, okay? So, an illustration of this in English, the word run, okay, run in English has 135 lexical options, okay? So we could think of some of those, you know, running as far as you're physically running, you're running a business, you know, this is running a refrigerator, whatever you may, you know, that semantic rage of the word run, okay, 135 different um, possible meanings of that word in English, okay? But when we, if someone writes something to you and uses that word run, you're not going to assume that it means every single one of those, right? You're going to look at the context and know this is the type of meaning he, the author meant when he used that word run, okay? This is just an English uh, example or illustration, okay? The standard expectation is for singular word meaning in any given context. So this can be very dangerous as well because someone can take a portion of the semantic range with a contextual basis to make the text say what they want it to. So let's say there's a word that has a broad range, and if they use this meaning, they can really make the text say something that maybe fits their agenda or fits what they want it to say, right? So either they're applying all of them or they're picking and choosing, well, I'd really like it more to be saying this even though the context doesn't point to that, okay? So this is an error we have to be very careful of, okay? The book also says caution should be exercised when studying descriptive characteristics of words used as metaphors. Words used as metaphors can often refer to one definition of a word in multiple contexts, but vary in relation to the point of emphasis highlighted by each context, okay? So the example, and we won't have to read them, Isaiah 53, 6 talks about all we like sheep have gone astray, okay? Using sheep as a metaphor of waywardness, and then in John 10, Three through four, Jesus talks about his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. So here you have the same word uh, and it's being used as a metaphor, but there's different aspects of that word that are being focused on. Isaiah is focusing on how sheep, sheep tend to be stubborn and wayward, 
Whereas Jesus, in his illustration, is using it to talk about people being loyal, having a relationship with the shepherd, that sort of thing. Okay, So we wouldn't want to say, well, Jesus is talking about the waywardness of sheep and this and that. So we want to understand the context and how that word is specifically used. Okay, The next one is what we call common priority fallacy. Okay, This fallacy occurs when a person gives the most common usage of a word priority over its less common usage okay so if you looked at the strong's concordance what you'll see like like i said when i looked at that word heard um you know you see the same word or you see a a way that that word's used primarily okay um and so what this is saying is some people will say well because this word 85 percent of the time means this and we're not sure how it's used here, we're going to lean toward what must mean what it's, what it's primarily meant, even though it can have variation, okay? But the book tells us frequency does not determine priority in word meaning. Ultimately, each word must be tested according to its use in each context in which it's found, okay? So even though word may primarily be used or more often it's used in a certain way, doesn't mean every case it's going to be, have that same meaning, Okay? The example they give is 1 Timothy 2.15. This is where Paul says that the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, so the Greek word is sozo, which is our common word for salvation, talking about being saved from sins. And so most of the times in Scripture when we see that word sozo, it's talking about spiritual salvation from sin, from death, putting our faith in Christ. And so if we... Uh, practice this error we would basically say well paul must be telling women that well if you persevere in childbearing and continue then you're saved by that action you're saved spiritually but the context and of course as we correlate we talked about correlation the last few weeks as we look at the big picture of scripture and paul's teaching about salvation we know that that idea is not what the context is saying and as we correlate it with what else scripture teaches we know that's not what paul's saying okay So we can understand Paul is teaching about a salvation from sin. He references in that context the fall. The woman fell. She sought to usurp authority from the husband. And so in 1 Timothy, he's talking about by being that submissive wife, by having children, you'll be safe from falling into that error that that Eve did, okay? So it's more of a salvation from falling into error than salvation from sin. Okay, so we want to be careful not to just assume every because that word's used in this mean this way. It's always used in that way. Okay. The next one is called root fallacy, also known as etym or uh, I can't say that word. Yes, I, and I know how to say it, but I just etymological fallacy. This is the assertion that the meaning of a word is a conglomeration of its morphological parts or constrained by its et- etymological root. Okay. So a couple illustrations of what it means when it says morphological part. So this is where two words form to create one word. So here's an example, pineapple, okay? Is a pineapple an apple from a pine tree? But the word's pineapple, so it should mean that it's an apple from a pine tree, right? Well, no, we know it's its own thing, right? Or butterfly, is a butterfly a fly that got in the butter and then it's flying around? No, it has its own meaning. Maybe. Yeah, it could be, right? Yeah. 
the, the semantic range might vary there. All right, so we have to be careful not to just assume, well, because these two words are together, we take the parts of them and we get the meaning that way, okay? That's not always the case. Sometimes that is the case, but it's not always the case. Or the other aspect of this root fallacy is we take the etymological root, okay? So what's the root of what created that word? So the example here of why that would be an error is the word nice comes from the Latin word nesis, which means not knowing or ignorant, okay? So, in other words, if we took that meaning, then to be nice means to be stupid or to be ignorant, okay? You're, you don't know, and so, again, that's not what the word means. We know that. Language changes over time, and we, so we have to be careful not to make this fallacy. So, this is important when we come to Scripture because we're not as familiar with Greek and Hebrew so we're going to sometimes just say, well, this, these are these two Greek words put together, and so it must mean this, and it doesn't always mean that. So we have to be careful. So the book says, you must never assume that a word means at the time of writing what it meant when it was first coined. Word meanings, or at least their nuances, tend to change over time, and we must not collapse the history of the meaning of a particular word. Don't allow etymology to take precedence over context. A word's meaning is ultimately determined by present intention not etymological past, okay? So just something to be aware of as we're studying words, all right? And the last one is exegetical distinction fallacy, and I know I've got a longer quote up there. This is the presupposition that the biblical writer is always intending heightened theological distinctions between different words, okay? So the book puts it this way. Just because a biblical writer uses one word rather than another doesn't invariably indicate that it this is significant to the interpretation of the text. This is similar to the way we use rough synonyms in English to avoid repetition without intended distinction and meaning. A biblical writer may use synonyms interchangeably for nothing more than stylistic variation. Readers must determine the degree to which a writer uses words for theological distinction. There may be significance in word distinction, or there may not be. Okay? So we talked about that word in a ball. And it seems pretty clear that why the author chose to use that word as opposed to other words. And sometimes there's, there is theological significance to why they used a word instead of an, a, a synonymous word, but not always. So we can't just make the assumption that, oh, he chose this word and there's significance to that. It might have just been, you know, just like we use different words and use synonyms. And even in the context, there might have, he might have used this similar word before and just to not be repetitious, used a different word. Okay, But really, it all comes down, as we've said, to context. Okay, We want to study these words to get a better understanding of what the word could mean, but the context is always key. What did the author intend? What was he communicating? Context is key when we come to understanding these words. Okay, The last thing I put was just a, a final word of caution the authors give, basically saying, you know, it, we can cross a danger, we can be into dangerous territory, as we're studying these words, we may come across a word where the semantic range means something. And man, if we, in this passage, make it mean this, then we can make some kind of uh, statement that's never been made before. Or we can be really creative in our sermon or lesson, whatever, if we apply this word. And so they just caution, don't, don't focus on, well, I've got to have some kind of new understanding of this passage. Or I've got to be able to present it in a way that makes this point that I want to drive home again our desire is to be true to what Scripture is communicating, not just to have a, 
a fancy sermon that makes a point that no one's ever made before or something like that. We want to be true to what the text says and what the author intended, okay? All right, any questions about anything we've covered? Just helpful ideas of when we're coming to words, how we can study these words and, and understand, grow in our, our understanding of what the text says. Any, any thoughts or questions, things you'd add? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we I know, we did a study. It's it was uh, was it on Sunday nights? I can't remember. We did a study on um, like bibliology a while back and how we got our books of the Bible, things like that. So that's sort of a different category, but and that's why I did that one first before we moved on to this because that's a good foundation to lay is how we got got the books of the Bible and that sort of thing. So. That's a good thought. Anything else?